Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The Apache trout is a success story in Arizona. 50 years ago, it was among the first animals to be listed on the Federal Endangered Species list. Now with help from the White Mountain Tribe, it is back from the brink of extinction. It's just one species of trout with cultural significance the tribes are working to revive, and they provide a strong and sustainable recreational benefit. We'll hear all about native trout right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Across Canada, several First Nations have been impacted by wildfires raging across the country. Dan Karpinchuk reports on a battle in northern Alberta. The fire raging near Fort Chippewan near Lake Athabasca in northeastern Alberta has already destroyed several cabins. Miccosu Cree Chief Billy Joe Tuchero shared the news with his community after taking an aerial tour of the fire. He says the homes lost were part of the Devil's Gate Reserve. It's been a tough day. I, I can't believe what's going on, but we will be here in regards to doing everything to protect everybody. Meanwhile, firefighters from British Columbia, Yukon and the United States have already arrived in the region. And over the past couple of days, more than 200 firefighters arrived from South Africa. They too will deploy to parts of northern Alberta. And Chief Tuchero says he's been assured by Ottawa that any cabins that were lost at Devil's Gate will be rebuilt. He's also asked the federal government for military firefighting personnel, resources and equipment. The out-of-control fire near Fort Chippewan has grown aggressively for several days. The Miccosu First Nation, Fort Chippewan Métis Nation and the Athabasca First Nation were evacuated a week ago. Chief Alan Adam of the Fort Chippewan Métis Nation says it's been an emotional few days. And fighting back tears, he added, we're in Mother Nature's hands. There are about 50 wildfires in Alberta, about a dozen of them still out of control. For National Native News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk. Land in northeastern Washington purchased by the Kalispell Tribe for new tribal housing produced an unexpected find, rock ovens that were built 5,000 years ago. Steve Jackson reports an excavation is now underway to uncover more secrets of that ancient era. Kalispell Tribal archaeologist Kevin Lyons says analysis of the leftover charcoal at the site near the Ponderay River is providing insight into the diet and culture of the ancient people who lived there. And so salmon had to be imported or brought up from the Little Spokane. But this is 3,000 years ago, it's pre-horse, so people are packing this around, dried and processed. Bitterroot, most of the bitterroot that historically was taken by the Kalispell either came from the channeled scablands or came out of Montana. Uh, that's a long walk for something. These folks were connected to very distant places early on. Lyons says the tribe decided to partner with Washington State University for the excavation. Archaeology professor Shannon Tushingham says field school students from WSU and other schools are getting valuable experience in what is called cultural resource management, an industry where archaeologists are called on for assessments in advance of construction projects. So there's archaeologists that work for the Bureau of Land Management, Forest Service, all of these agencies, and they need people. And, and what's happening now with the infrastructure bill, there are, there's a huge um, need for trained archaeologists and very few trained archaeologists, especially after COVID. I haven't been able to have a field school for, for four years. 
Tushingham says the students are also learning to communicate more effectively with tribal members, something archaeologists haven't always prioritized. Researchers will work to document as much of the ancient Kalispell site as they can before the housing development is completed. For National Native News, I'm Steve Jackson reporting from Spokane. In preparation for hurricane season, the United Home Nation is holding a drive through bundled items event this week for tribal citizens. Items have been donated to the tribe and will be given out, including food, COVID tests, hurricane preparedness kits, and feminine hygiene products. The distribution will take place Saturday in Houma, Louisiana. The majority of the tribe's 19,000 citizens live along the coastal bayous of southeast Louisiana, which has been hit hard by past hurricanes. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium, working to ensure tribal colleges and universities are included in our higher education system. Information on 37 tribal colleges and universities at AIHEC.org. Support by AARP. AARP creates and connects people to unique tools and programs, helps conserve personal resources, and tackles issues that matter most to individuals, families, and communities. More at AARP.org. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. Once abundant in the mountain streams of Arizona, the Apache trout nearly went extinct. While still endangered, the native fish species is recovering thanks in parts to efforts by the White Mountain Apache tribe. Another fish in Nevada, the Lahontan cutthroat trout, has a strong tribal connection and the Pyramid Lake Paiute tribe mobilized when fish populations started declining. Several tribes are helping revive and maintain trout species in the face of threats like overfishing, habitat loss, and pollution. Today on our show, we'll hear about some of those efforts and learn about why trout are important. Tell us about the trout where you live. What threats do they face? Call us, 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. On our show today, we have guests from across Turtle Island. Joining us from White River, Arizona, on the White Mountain Apache Reservation is Bradley Clarkson. He's a fish biologist, and he is White Mountain Apache. Bradley, welcome to the show. Good morning. Joining us from Pyramid Lake Paiute Reservation on the western edge of the Great Basin is Mervyn Wright, Jr. He's the executive director of Pyramid Lake Fisheries, and he is a Pyramid Lake Paiute tribal member. Mervyn, welcome to you as well. Hey, good morning. Joining us from Caribou, Maine, is Mike Smith. He is the farm business manager for Micmac Farms and Fish Hatchery. Mike, welcome to Native America Calling. Good afternoon. And joining us from Portland, Oregon is Sherilyn Sosi. She is a fly fishing angler. and She is Denae and White Mountain Apache. Sherilyn, thanks for talking to us today. Good morning, everyone. Well, Bradley, I'd like to go ahead and start with you today and tell us a little bit more about the Apache trout and how they came to be so revered by the White Mountain people. Uh, the the Apache trout 
back in the 1950s, they got on the endangered species list. And that created what the tribe put together is the, uh, the wilderness area. And that was to protect the Apache trout. And for the Apache trout, uh, we have 13 lineages right now in the white, uh, the drainage of the white, well, from the Mount Bali drainages. And and that's what's making it really important to where uh, back in uh, 1985, 86, that's when they started uh, successfully spawning the Apache trout here in the, at Williams Creek National Fish Hatchery. So Bradley, this goes back over 30 years, these efforts. And, and tell us, why was it that the, the trout was put on that endangered species list? How low were the numbers at that point? Uh, it was low enough to be on a endangered species list. I am not, I, uh, I don't know the numbers at that time when they get on the species list, endangered species list, but uh, uh, one of the things, one of the issues at the time was overfishing, and also, um, also the uh, predators, and also water quality. And lately, it's pretty much water uh, quantity. So that all was uh, what we were looking at at the time. Water quality, and now just with the droughts and, and less water there in the West, uh, just the amount of water, obviously, is creating challenges. What were the predators to the Apache trout back then? Oh, uh, the predators were the non-natives. <laughs> okay. The brown trout. Okay. Oh, I get you. And get you the rainbow trout, trout Okay. were uh, displacing the Apache trout. And also the third, or the human beings were fishing for it and over-harvesting. Mm -hmm. So that decreased the numbers. And those are the three that is sticking out the most at that time. But now, back in the last few years here, it's the drought. The drought is what's really... Uh, and then the next one will be uh, disease issues that's related to the low flows and water quality. So we, uh, the Williams Creek National Fish Hatchery and the tribe, White Mountain Apache tribe, and also our partners, the Arizona uh, Fish and Wildlife Conservation Office, plus the Dexter National Fish Hatchery uh, Genetics Lab. And we're, the efforts is to continue to increase disease resistance. And that is our ultimate goal at this time. Disease resistance, and it's important to note that uh, these efforts by the White Mountain Tribe have been largely successful, and, and the Apache trout numbers are up. The fish is thriving again, you, even in the midst of all these challenges you mentioned, like the drought and other factors, right? Yes, and one thing that we are doing right now uh, is collecting cryo, cryo melt and storing it at the Atlanta, Georgia uh, Fish Health Tech Center. And we are collecting milk for next season spawning. Okay. And the last couple of years, 
we've been collecting cryo milk out in the wild using okay. the East Fork strains, and that's one of the 13 strains. But we are, uh, right now we have a 50% cryo, cryo uh, wild, cryo milk. And, and Bradley, could you, I'm sorry. To, yeah. Okay, could you explain for our listeners what the cryo, I know it has to do with, with reproduction for the fish, but could you explain so our listeners get a better, a better understanding? Oh, the cryogenetics is what we do is we uh, collect milk from the wild Apache trout mm-hmm. and we put it in the straw and freeze it and preserve it at one of the labs. And, that's and the, the milk, that's like a, a reproductive fluid, is that right, of the yeah. fish? Okay. And that's coming from the male, the male, the male Apache trout. There's another way that you could do that is just uh, stream type spawning. If the Apache trout male and females are ready at that time. So, but it's, that that one's really hard to do because it has to do with timing. Because like one example is in 2017 at this time of the of the of the week. We had males that were ripe, but now, yesterday, our, our crew came back in 2023, and there were males that were not ready yet due to high water flows and cold temperature. So it's all depend on, you know, like the weather. How, how, like last year was a drought. This year was good snowfall. So it's really hard to predict that, but... But but the easy part right now is not easy, but uh, is getting collecting cryo milk, male sperm from the Apache trout. This is fascinating, Bradley, and especially with regard to how successful these efforts have been. I also want to ask you about the cultural impact here. What is the community saying? Are they happy? Are they excited that these Apache trout are thriving again? I uh, the come into the uh, during the spring all the way to the summer the fishermen on the reservation are really asking about Apache trout and where are they uh, where are they being released and they're uh, anticipating and they're getting ready to go out and harvest it and do recreation and that's what's the really important part with the tribe is a recreation and the Apache trout to be able to go catch the Apache trout for recreation. Because before, you know, it was, uh, it, uh, you could find those only in, in, in the wilderness areas. So the range now of the Apache trout, are they all over the reservation? And will there be limits with regard to how many fish that people can catch? Uh, there's mm, the good part about, you know, one time the limit was like 12 to 15, but now the limit is decreased probably like around eight to six, maybe, because there's, we're trying to keep up with the anglers as well, you know, so everybody can catch them. Mm-hmm. So, so that there's number, the, the anglers are increasing as well. So we're, we're trying to keep up with that. So that's the number, I say, is about six to eight uh, trout that you can catch. 
six to eight trout. So definitely managing that population. I want to go to Mervyn now, who is in Pyramid Lake uh, on the western edge of the Great Basin. And Mervyn, tell us more about the origin of the, the Lahontan cutthroat trout there at Pyramid Lake. Yeah, okay, thank you. Um, yeah, the, um, the ancient uh, Lake Lahontan existed, um, you know, as long as 20,000 years ago. Um, and and, and and the um, geologic record, you know, puts it back to about 10,000 years, and <clears throat> over 8,000 years it evaporated. Um, and you know, when it was that one body of water, it had the one uh, the fish species, you know, the Lahontan cutthroat trout, uh, along with the, the ancient kui fish, uh, which is also at Pyramid Lake, indigenous to Pyramid Lake, um, endemic to Pyramid Lake. Uh, so when the ancient lake uh, uh, evaporated, it isolated a number of these populations. Uh, and you know, although Western science, you know, segregated all these populations and named them, uh, cre created uh, categories and established rules of authority and control uh, through legislation like the Endangered Species Act. Um, that Western science, you know, while doing that, you know, it um, just like anything else that has happened with the development of our country, you know, segregation became a, a, a serious issue. Mm -hmm. Mervyn, we're going to have to take a short break, but when we come back, I want to ask you, because I know that there have been some disagreements with regard to the tribe and how fish and wildlife has been managing the fish. So we'll be right back and we'll talk with you more. Just as South Dakota was adopting new standards that diminished teaching about local tribes, one school in Rapid City began a curriculum based on tribal history, culture, and language. We'll hear about that school and others that are setting a bold course for a balanced approach to teaching Native perspectives in schools. That's on the next Native America Calling. Services. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. We're talking about trout management, restoration, and fishing today. Do you have a comment about trout fishing in your tribal community? Share your thoughts on the air by calling 1-800-996-2848. You can also post on our social media pages. We've got Mervyn Wright Jr. on the line. He's the executive director of Pyramid Lake Fisheries. And Mervyn, I, I understand that there have been some disagreements between fish and wildlife and the tribe in terms of how to manage this trout population. Can you talk about that? Yeah, just a little bit of history of the Lahontan cutthroat trout uh, at Pyramid Lake. Um, they were placed on the endangered species list in, I think, 1969. And um, so the effort here has been to recover the, um, you know, the LCT, as we call them. And um, 
we started rearing LCT, I believe it was in 1981 in our fish hatcheries. Um, and what we discovered, I mean, from, from that point until now, you know, a lot of evolution has occurred with our operation. And um, we have a spawn channel that, that we, we operate here um, uh, on the lake uh, at our lake operations facility. Um, and um, what we discovered was that when we introduced a salmonid uh, species to the lake, they responded a very positive. It, it um, you know, in, in fact, um, they thrived. And so, you know, we're looking at um, <clears throat> these Summit Lake, um, what they call, again, getting back to Western science segregation rules, the, the, the Summit Lake strain, um, when they were introduced to Pyramid Lake, this is basically what we have today. And they've been here for, you know, um, uh, since, since, since the 1980s. And, you know, when, when we talk about evolution and adaptation to a, um, a, a, an ecosystem, you know, those species basically become a part of that ecosystem. In 1979, um, the BLM discovered this huge trout on the eastern side of the state along the Utah border in this area called Pilot Peak. And so they thought that it was the, you know, the original trout from Pyramid Lake. And the story goes that in 1918, those eggs were, were, were transported out of the basin to, um, to the eastern side of the state. <clears throat> so they've been there for almost 90 years. And the Fish and Wildlife Service has been stressing hard on the LCT recovery throughout the Lahontan Basin. Um, and, and, and we see in, in, in the, the, the recovery plan, uh, they did a status review. They were supposed to be doing a status review every five years, but this is the second status review that was just issued this year and it talks about pure genetic strain. <clears throat> Again, getting back to the Endangered Species Act, they only go as far as species in the statute. However, you know, locally they, they get into genetic strains and now they want to push a pure genetic strain. Those, those pilot peak strain uh, LCT have been out of the basin for almost 90 years and, and they're bringing them back here. And some people say, oh, we're bringing them home. Well, they've been out of the basin for that long, and it's more or less you're introducing a, a, a new strain to this basin. Um, and, and of course, the Fish and Wildlife Service, their rule is, you know, as far as recovery, um, native to basin. And so, it, it, what they're doing doesn't make sense, you know, when we, when we look at um, what we're trying to do here with recovery, and and the 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 LCT that we spawn. In our spawn channel, I mean, they've, they're, they're larger fish now. They're up to 30 inches, uh, sometimes 36. I mean, we've got some monsters in there. Mm -hmm. But a lot of them are, are around, you know, 25, 26, 28 inch. And um, it's just been very successful. And uh, it's just, you know, when they get into genetics management, that's where we start having, you know, disagreements. So, Mervyn, what do you think would be a better solution just to, not approach it from this genetic strain standpoint and, and leave those fish out of this current basin? Is that the better solution? 
No, um, I mean we actually. Okay, so 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 they introduced them here in 2006, and so they had rules that they were trying to apply to us. Like you're not supposed to, you know, we don't want you to spawn these pilot strain. And then there was another a time when they said we only we want you to only spawn pilots and nothing else. So it's just kind of a back and forth thing that there was going on. So we decided this year we're going to spawn, we're going to pair up um, some of these pilots in our facility. And so we did. We took six pairs. And <clears throat> so they, they, they have a brood stock over there in Gardnerville in the Laha National Fish Hatchery. And um, and they, they floy tag all their, their, their um, what they rear. And they bring some over here to Pyramid Lake. And of course, when you when you tag them, you 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 clip the adipose fin off the off the between the dorsal and the and the tail. And um, we said we're not going to spawn those that have a floy tag, or those that do not have a adipose fin. And so we've taken everything that you know the six pairs that we took or we are our fish that we know came from that have been raised at Pyramid Lake, you know, been reared at Pyramid Lake naturally. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to take DNA samples, they wanted to clip the fins, and we said no. And um <clears throat> they said, okay, well can we come help? And we said, sure. And so, you know, I mean the thing is is that what they've gotten into, we were in a meeting in February in Sparks, in our agency meeting, and their geneticist from the University of Nevada Reno, who's supposed to retire this month, um, stated that their intent is to um, use genetic management as their recovery method and that they're trying to create a superior fish that could withstand, you know, all the changes to the that man has caused, pollution, climate change, and all this. And we don't agree with that. Um, <clears throat> so um, we said that, that the, the preferred method of recovery has to be restoring the habitat, you know, having the water supply secured, which we do have the water supply, the tribe has secured it through the water rights settlement, at least we secured enough water to support spawning runs, you know, annual spawning runs. Um, the, the state of Nevada relinquishes ownership, any claim to the ownership of the beds and banks of the Truckee River and Pyramid Lake, so we basically have ownership, and it's all within the boundaries of the reservation. And of course, the fish that are in the lake are property of the lake. So, restoring the habitat—that's the the preferred solution there by the Pyramid Lake Tribe. We've got Mervin Wright Jr. on the line. Let's go ahead and go to the phones now. We've got Chanupa, who's listening on Keeley up in Pine Ridge, South Dakota. Hello, Chanupa. Hey, Sean. Thank you for having me back on. I want to share something with that brother. We have a dam they call East Dam here on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, just about two miles east of uh, the agency. And uh, a few years back, almost 13 years ago, they drained it to reclean it and stock it. We had some original lake trout in there, but we also had some steelheads. I'm pretty sure the guy is aware of the steelhead trout. They're not, they don't have a piece of metal in their head, it's just they're. Their silver coat, you know, the way their okay. cranium is, okay? Well, anyway, they got rid of the steelheads, but their larvas, like what he said about the eggs transferred in another area, they say it survived in that this lake here in Pine Ridge, okay, in these dams. And here what happened, the lake trout start, you know, 
mandling in with those um, steelhead eggs. And now we have some crossbred trout that are as large as what he talked about, 36 to 38 inches. There was one caught here uh, back in um, early part of March when it's still snow. And that guy was 47 inches long, man. Mm. So whatever happens with the way the ecosystem does, there's nothing wrong with these eggs doing this, but it has to be governed by native people. And I respect and honor that brother that stood up to the other side of that story at the other races. So back to you, and thank you for having me on TV Radio. You bet, Chanupa. I really appreciate those insights. So, Mervin, I want to go back to you. Chanupa's describing these very large crossbred fish, and, uh, boy, he's given you a lot of props and agrees and supports with what you're doing. Can you relate to some of these crossbreeds getting that big? Holy cow, almost 50 inches long. Well, yeah. I mean, the, the concern we have here on the in the Truckee Pyramid Lake system is um, uh, the, the Nevada Department of Wildlife. They've been stocking non-native trout in in the Truckee River since the late 1800s, and there has been some hybridization um, between those non-natives and the Lahontan cutthroat trout. And the service is talking about that's the primary goal is to stop the, the the hybridization but there's a wild stock of rainbows that are in the system and what uh, the gentleman said from white mountain you know one of the threats is the predation of um the, uh, from those non-natives to the, the the lct that that we stock in the river system upstream um and so but what we're talking about here when they when they say hybridization you know the service you know what they don't put in writing is the communication of these mixing of between these strains you know the different strains the lct strains the mixing has been happening here at pyramid lake there's nothing we can do to stop that you know we can't put signs out there in the water telling the trout you know you're not welcome or you can't come in here (laughs) i mean it's silly but the thing is that it's going to happen and that's nature taking its course and and so we want nature to take its course because one day there is going to be a dominant LCT strain in Pyramid Lake, and that's the one that's going to prevail. We just don't want it to be bioengineered or genetically engineered. We would rather it. have nature take its course. So that's why habitat restoration, water supplies, you know, those are the those are the natural uh, approaches to uh, recovery. Mervin, thanks for sharing all these insights. It's highly technical stuff, but but really interesting, and uh, I think it's really resonating well with our audience today. Let's head now to the East Coast. Uh, in addition to Mike Smith and Caribou, Maine, we're also joined today by Shannon Hill. And Shannon is the Natural Resource Director for the Mi'kmaq Farms and Fish Hatchery, and she's Mi'kmaq. Shannon, welcome to the show as well. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me today. Absolutely, and uh, tell us a little bit about what's going on there in, in, in your community. I know your tribe is raising fish from both a cultural perspective and, and a business mindset. What are the goals? Yes. Yeah, so back in 2009, we opened up Mi'kmaq Farms, which is both agriculture um, but also an aquaculture. So currently we are raising native brook trout, um, mostly for food sovereignty, um, for food stability for our tribal members, but as you mentioned, also as an economic 
development opportunity for the tribe. And how is the project going so far? Has it been successful? So far, so good. It's been received very well in our local community here and by our tribal members. Um, we process um, and raise roughly, I want to say it's about 20,000 pounds of brook trout a year. And we process that and distribute it to tribal members um, and just the local community in general. So non-tribal members can purchase the fish, and what's the response? Do they do they like the product? Yes, no, they can. They can locally. Like I said, it's it's been welcomed well locally. Um, we have a lot of local breweries. Um, those have become very popular um, along the East Coast here lately, and we had we're fortunate to have a few of those in our area. So those type of businesses offer those more unique. Um, offerings like brook trout in their restaurants, something outside of, you know, your pizza and burgers. And so those types of operations um, have definitely been very interested in our products, but we've also shipped um, out of state, downstate quite a bit. Um, we are in Northern Maine, so we're pretty far from, um, you know, civilization as you would call it. So <laughs> we, but we have um, in the past um, been very successful in marketing our product um, downstate and out of state as well. I want to bring Mike into the conversation. He's the farm business manager there at Mi'kmaq Farms and Fish Hatchery. And Mike, I understand that the Mi'kmaq are raising native brook trout using a very innovative hatchery method. Tell us more about it. Uh, we use a recirculating method uh, of the water. Um, so we use very little uh, low maintenance and uh, energy costs. Um, to uh, produce the fish, so and is this a filter. and is this a technique or a process that you folks have developed yourselves, or is it based on some pre-existing technology? Uh, it's pre-existing technology. Uh, it's it's well known. In a lot of different places use it, but it's it's a, it's a good process, I guess. And what are some of the challenges of managing a hatchery of this size? Because it sounds like it's a pretty big operation. Just be able to give them the right amount of food, grow them out in time, and we we're really limited on space and how we can, uh, how many fish we can have at one time, and so it's just a constantly juggling method of it. Um, so it's it, once we uh, maybe in the future we'll have a little bit more room. Uh, but right now we just we're we're not that big of an operation, but we're we're growing and we're learning and and uh, hopefully in the future we we can uh, process more fish for the members of the area and the tribal members. And Mike, is the end goal to get to a point where you will no longer need hatcheries, or will hatcheries always be necessary to enable populations, brook trout populations like yours, to thrive? In the future, I think you're always going to have to have uh, hatcheries. It's more of a put-and-take effort anymore rather than um, a, a natural surviving, um, natural ha uh, for native brook trout, only because of the ever-changing uh, climate, the water clarity, the farm runoffs, the this water 
water chemistry in itself is just not conducive unless we make some big changes in the world. I don't foresee us having a big native population um, sustaining itself. Earlier, we heard Bradley in Arizona mention overfishing, water quality, predators as well. Are you folks facing some of those challenges as well, similar to what they're having in Arizona? Definitely water quality, water clarity. Um, Field runoff is a big thing here. We have a big uh, farming operations in the area, potatoes in general, and broccoli. So most of our land is worked up rather than uh, have uh, grasses and stuff in it. So we have a lot of water clarity problems and quality problems and with chemicals and of that sort that the farming community uses, and that is becoming a bigger problem. You're listening to Native America Calling. Phone number for a question, 1-800-996-2848. Stay with us. This Father's Day, you can give your dad a truly unique gift from SweetGrassTradingCo.com, a Ho-Chunking company where you can choose from a variety of food, beauty, and wellness items from tribes across Turtle Island. Ho-Chunking supports this show. Support for journalism that raises the awareness of child well-being to citizens and to policymakers provided by the Annie E. Casey Foundation, building a brighter future for children, families, and communities. Information at AECF.org. You're listening to Native America Calling. Still plenty of time to join our conversation about native trout. If you have a comment or question, let us hear it by calling 1-800-996-2848. Anglers, trawlers, fisher folk, if you're listening, I'd sure like to hear your perspectives too. Call us at 1-800-996-2848. On a side note, you can also listen back to Native America Calling as a podcast. Shows are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other platforms. Shannon Hill is the Natural Resource Director for Mi'kmaq Farms Fish and Hatchery, Farms and Fish Hatchery, and we're learning a lot about uh, <clears throat> this new project where uh, the tribe is developing and, and raising fish, and they're selling them, and uh, tribal members are, are using the fish as, as a form of food sovereignty. And Shannon, please tell us a little bit more about the cultural significance of, of the brook trout to the Mi'kmaq people. Of course. So, you know, native brook trout are are what our people have, you know, eaten for, you know, centuries. And as Mike had mentioned earlier, we are located in a very rich agricultural area. You know, we're third third largest potato grower in the nation. And so we have, over the years, um, unfortunately, a lot of toxins and pesticide usage and things like that have been added to the soils, which have eventually run off into all the little streams and tributaries that our tribal members would typically fish from. So unfortunately, we have um, a statewide fish advisory that encorpses uh, a huge part of our area with either a, a no fish um, at all or it's a one meal per month warning so it makes it very difficult for our tribal members that have you know typically you know used to having almost half of their diet be from the water um, now unable to safely consume 
the fish that they they do go down um, and, and fish for. So typically now, you know, our tribal members are fishing purely for recreational because anything they catch, um, they have to put back because they're they're unsure of the health of that fish. We are having huge um, levels of mercury and lead. Of like I mentioned, the agriculture. You know, we have a lot of nitrite nitrates um, from runoff in our fields that, as we all know, eventually end up into our, our water systems and affect everything that's living in that. So the goal was, the, the original purpose of the hatchery was to be able to provide this traditional food staple to our community. You know, again, as we all know, Native Americans have a very high obesity rate, diabetes rate. Um, so being able to have a healthy, lean protein like fish is extremely important to our overall health. Uh, so the goal of the fish hatchery in the, in the beginning was for food sustainability, to be able to provide this protein um, to the tribal members and to you know encourage them to, to live well and live healthy. Um, over the years, it has morphed um, into an equally economically developed um, enterprise. Um, not only do we raise fish for food, but we are raising them as pond stalkers and um, can and sell um, to individuals that have private ponds. So if they want to raise fish on their own property, um, they're able to do that as well. And then again, uh, we do market to outside entities um, and um, provide fish to restaurants and local school systems. We're currently working with a school system here to provide um, lake trout just or the brook trout just for a taste testing in their school to provide the, the students an opportunity to try something different. Um, so <laughs> we work locally in our community, and we have a very strong presence in our in our local community. And the students, do they like the fish? Well, this is going to be the very first one, and so okay. so they haven't actually tried it yet, so I'm very anxious. They're going to prepare it um, in two different ways, as a chowder and then fry it up in a traditional um, in a traditional way. Um, so oh, so good. we'll see how that goes. Um, I'm very anxious for that project. <laughs> All right. Well, Shannon and Mike, thank you both for joining us today, and best of luck moving forward with the Mi'kmaq Farms and Fish Hatchery. Let's we go now to that. Thank you. You bet. Let's go now to Portland, Oregon. We have Sherilyn Sosi, who's been waiting in the wings. And again, she's a fly fishing angler. Sherilyn, you represent one reason why we're talking about trout today, the appeal to recreational fishers. What got you into fishing? Yeah, so I uh, was introduced to fly fishing from an old friend of mine, and I've been fishing for about 13 years now. Um, before I started fishing, um, Angling, fishing of any sort um, was just silly to me. I got pretty bored pretty easy, so I had no interest whatsoever. Um, but as they say, um, once I caught that first fish, I was hooked. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. <laughs> nice pun there, Sherilyn. So what is it about trout? I mean, why are they so desired by sport anglers such as yourself? I mean, other than that they're beautiful fish, I hear they're pretty tasty. I myself am catch and release. So um, I'm not sure. And then from where I'm from, um, or 
where I live now, I'm originally from New Mexico, but where I live now, um, you know, fish is a big staple for the native communities here um, and other cultures. But, um, you know, I think just livelihood and then just because they're beautiful fish, they're fun to catch. And mentioning the tribes there in Oregon, I mean, are you hearing similar issues there with regards to restoration and habitat challenges and perhaps even, you know, some some disputes with, with local commissions and things like that to benefit the fish? Yes, definitely. I mean, I think the major, one of the major issues here in um, healthy rivers and um, fish the livelihood of fish are, are the dams. And so, I mean, within all the communities, but there's various tribes up here. So I'm not fully versed in what um, specifically what conflicts may, may happen. I do know that dams are a big issue. Um, salmon, um, red band trout, the steelhead, which are, um, they are, essentially trout, just like regular trout that go out to the ocean and then come back to spawn. So um, those are all threatened by dams and being able to get back to their spawning grounds and where they, you know, where they came from. Sherlyn, you mentioned you are a catch and release fisher. Why is that? Why don't you ever eat the fish you catch? Um, I'm just not, I just don't eat fish. <laughs> I've just never been um, a fish person, seafood person. That's a, um, it wasn't like culturally ingrained in, in our tribe. Um, I do know, you know, there's plenty of anglers who are Navajo or from that, that area. Um, but I just didn't grow up with it. I'm not a big fish. Um, and I just genuinely love the sport. I, it's been therapeutic for me. Um, it's also, I feel like a huge gateway to converse, uh, conservation. I don't think I was as involved before fly fishing um, came into my life. How long did it take you to become a competent fly fisher? Oh, I've been fishing for, so I've been fishing for about 15 years and it took me a couple years before I felt really confident in, in my skills and was kind of venturing away from my friends who were teaching me um, and kind of went off. Um, but I feel pretty confident now. Um, I'm uh, an ambassador for a nonprofit that is um, called Brown Folks Fishing that highlights, you know, uh, folks of color who are anglers. And you have a podcast, and uh, I, I had a listen earlier. It's a it's a really cool conversation. Uh, Women and waiters, I, I think, is is one of your hashtags. Tell us more about it. Yeah, I don't have a podcast. I was um, interviewed on a podcast. Oh, that's uh, right. I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, it was a really interesting discussion. And, and I want to ask you, because you mentioned fishing as a sport, but I mean, what is it for you most? Is it, is it a sport? Is it a hobby? Is it a lifestyle? Is it a little all of the above? I feel like it's all of the above. I think for, for me personally, it's... Um, it's really a hobby. I, in fact, I wouldn't even call it my hobby. I call it my passion. Um, I, it's gotten me through a lot of very tough moments in my life. Um, it has grounded me. It has brought me back to my culture. Um, you know, I feel like as a Native person and in the 
importance of like living in balance with nature and in all the beings. And so um, it brought me back to that and has, has given me a whole new perspective and respect for um, just in our environment and what it means to protect it. Now, Sherilyn, I know you're also a very vocal advocate just to get native people outdoors active and is fishing, does that fit all into that overall mission that you have to support healthy lifestyles? Definitely. Um, I, you know, I just, I look around me and most of the people that I see are, are to be honest, just older white males. Um, and it's, I can't tell you what it means to me when I see one another woman or um, a person of color and even better when I see a native person on the water, I, you know, I follow plenty. There's plenty of um, very versed native anglers and it brings me a lot of pride um, to see, you know, other folks like me. And also, like I was saying before, I think, you know, keeping it connected to your culture um, and just being able to like show other people like this, this, you can do this. There are, there are definite barriers, but you know, um, the more the more we like highlight that, the more we can act, you know create access for for everyone. And Sherilyn, what are the barriers? Because I know it's not a cheap sport. Yeah, I mean, definitely one of the barriers is cost. Uh, it is not um, it's not cheap to start. Um, but there are there's a lot of programs starting, just like um, you know the nonprofit that I. Um, affiliated with that create spaces and scholarships and things like that um, that get communities of color out on the water and then also just teaching conservation. Okay. Well, thank you, Sheldon. I want to go back to our first guest, Bradley, now. And, and Bradley, earlier you were talking all about uh, the uh, the Apache trout and really from a biological standpoint, but are you a fisherman as well, Bradley? Uh, I used to be, but I fish like uh, two or three times a year. Two or three times a year? Okay. Yeah, maybe, yeah. All right. But uh, it's just that I see fish every day, Monday to Friday. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I understand. It's not really, uh, (laughs) it's part of your job there. Mervin, how about you? Do you fish? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, we we actually uh, are modifying our regulations, and uh, as the um, uh, young lady said earlier about her catch and release, we have a lot more folks coming out. Our anglers are catch and release, and so we're going to be increasing our take from two to four. We are trying to maintain a food web, and so you know we don't um, you know so we we can produce. In the last time I saw a report. In 2016, we we released a 1.2 million uh, juvenile into the um, into Pyramid Lake, but today our our goal is 500,000. So we, we're trying to maintain that food web, and of course the threat in the you know right now we're facing water quality issues too. So, but yes, I'm an angler. Um, our fishing season is open from October 1 through June 30, and um, Anyway, yeah, that's it's fun. I and all my kids and and, and what it was said, uh, what it was said described earlier, you know, and I was there each, when each one of my kids uh, caught their first uh, lahan cutthroat trout here at Pyramid Lake, and the excitement. And and it, again, it, it's, it whenever I ask them if they want to go fishing, you know, 
it was always, yeah, when, when are we going? You know, so it's fun. It's, I really enjoy it. Those sound like wonderful memories, Mervin. Sherilyn, for somebody listening today who doesn't fish, maybe never tried it or once or twice, what's your advice? I I would say go for it. Um, if you have a friend who is um, inviting you out or you know that's one of their passions, I would definitely say um, go for it. it. It's taken me to some beautiful places. In fact, just um, last year, I went back to where my mom is from. I'm White Mountain Apache also. Um, and went and caught the Apache golden trout. And that's been um, a great accomplishment of mine. Really fascinating conversation here, learning all about the ins and outs of trout, native trout uh, from all across Turtle Island, different parts, different native communities, Oregon, Arizona, Nevada, Maine, Lots of perspectives today for sure here on Native America Calling and uh, lots to think about as well going forward. And uh, Sherilyn, I have one more question for you before we wrap up. And uh, when you go out there on the water, um, what's the hardest part about being able to to fly fish and and just have a good catch? Um, Patience. (laughs) Having patience, Uh, especially when you're first starting, getting, you know, you're getting tangled up, you not sure which fly to use. Um, it just takes some patience. And, um, but you know, my advice is you'll get there. And that's just part of one of the, the great parts of fly fishing is that it, it teaches you a lot other than just fishing. Um, um, there's so many different aspects that it, it brings into your life. Um, patience being one of them, which was not my greatest virtue, but I, I feel like it's taught me a lot. <laughs> Well, it sounds like just a lot of life lessons out there that are learned on the water. We've reached the end of our hour, so we're going to have to wrap up the show now. But before we do, I'd like to thank all of our guests today, Mervyn Wright Jr., Bradley Clarkson, Shannon Hill, Mike Smith, and Sherilyn Sosi. Join us tomorrow as we take a look at tribes taking control of lessons about Native culture and history. Looking forward to talking with you again soon. Support by Amerind, Indian Country's 100% tribally owned insurance partner. Amerind works with tribal governments and their business enterprises to provide effective commercial insurance coverage, strengthen Native American communities, protect tribal sovereignty, and help keep dollars in Indian Country. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto solutions at Amerind.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-N-D.com. Yate, Arnot and the Warriors no singular, at Atahia, a Jano singi, a Skuno singi, a Chino singi, a Yajan singi, Ado Atano singi, Arnot and its other Pondi Zangit are a Yono thingy, which also Zindo this. D. A. Yabi Anzen, checklist at Nego, Adola at Sisyandot, and he, Kajosi Anado Tinzon, go to cms.gov slash men's health checklist eligibility in decorobing his own centers for Medicare and Medicaid services. A bit Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. 
Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.